being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 42 imperial japan part 12 spikelopedia number four yoshiko kawashima part three the matahari of asia today i'm recording from the heibei model prison in beijing you know how some people will say they don't like drama and without fail It's always the most dramatic people you know who cause the most drama who say that. Well, Yoshiko Kawashima wrote, My whole life has been formed by false gossip about me, and I will die because of false gossip about me. This has been the case throughout my whole life. I mean, they're just haters, right? Let's talk about Yoshiko's next lover, the first love of her life. She got 20,000 yen from the Japanese branch manager of the South Manchuria Railway Company which she immediately wasted. In Harbin, Manchuria, she took up with a lawyer named Thomas Abe. He was the first love of her life. He wrote of their time together. She stayed at the splendid modern hotel, which was owned by a Russian. She joined two of the best rooms together and had her meals in the middle of the large dining hall. Several tables were joined together and she would invite dozens of people over as guests. She'd have them play her favorite music and set herself up at the center of the table, which was full of flowers. Really, she dined like a queen. Unquote. Now, this was a manic time for the Japanese. They were losing the war, yet they were in complete command of Manchukuo, and they knew that time was and they knew that time was running out, so they partied like crazy. Abe wrote of a time that seemed to portend, you know, a change in fortunes. He wrote of when they were driving around to different nightclubs in Harbin, with Yoshiko sitting on his lap. When an old Chinese woman approached them and said, you're just a high-class whore, but they ignored her and went on to a dance hall where Yoshiko danced like a butterfly, as Abe put it, and the club owner would put a sign out announcing, Yoshiko Kawashima is now here. Almost like Elvis or something, right? and curious crowds would swarm in to have a look at her. Real fin de siècle, last days of the Nazis, solo vibes or something, right? The remark from the Chinese woman reflected what the average Chinese person thought about Yoshiko Kawashima, but Yoshiko did not seem to care. This would ultimately be her downfall. Around this time, Yoshiko went back to Japan. She was seen publicly at a sumo match in the presence of, and stop me if you've heard this before, famous ultranationalist Mitsuru Toyama, as well as her old lover, Ainsuke Iwata. If you'll recall, that's the guy who handed her a gun, <laughs> which allowed her to shoot herself. In the time between their love and now, Iwata had helped assassinate a prime minister. One of the reasons for her travel between Japan and Manchuria was to seek medical att- attention. She had taken quite a beating over the years, ranging from her self-inflicted gunshot wound to a different time when she was shot to an airplane crash. She had also become addicted to narcotics to deal with the pain, probably just because she wanted to do drugs, right? She was aging, she was addicted to drugs, her beauty was fading. She wasn't that old, and she didn't realize it, but she was entering the latter end of her life. A Japanese reporter around this time interviewed her and observed her injecting herself in the leg. Yoshiko said it was glucose and just continued with the interview. But it was definitely heroin, or, you know, maybe morphine. 
In the same interview, she said, The establishment of the paradise of Manchukuo is still not easy. The Japanese must... The Japanese must learn more about the land and the people of Manchukuo and deepen their understanding. Some surprising misunderstandings and rumors have started to circulate there, which is such a perfect way to explain Manchukuo. A Manchu princess injecting herself with heroin, explaining how Manchukuo's experiences, how Manchukuo is experiencing, quote, rumors and misunderstandings. By 1937, Kawashima had largely transitioned out of an espionage role, almost certainly not willingly, and she started a restaurant in Tianjin. I think it served Manchu food. Apparently, their signature dish was the Genghis Khan hot pot. Now, once a collaborator, always a collaborator, right? Because this wasn't just any restaurant. She catered specifically to the Japanese army. Yoshiko befriended a Japanese actress named Yoshiko Yamaguchi. She mentored her, to a degree, in the sordid world that they were both in. I have a lot more to say about Yoshiko Yamaguchi in future episodes, but she was in some very interesting movies, let's just say. But Yamaguchi wrote of interacting with Yoshiko. She said, I'll never forget that strange scene in the middle of the meal, Yoshiko Kawashima suddenly raised the hem of her robe like, just like that, exposing her thigh. Next, she took a syringe out of a drawer and deftly gave herself a shot. It was a white liquid. She had a brother who was an opium addict, and so there were rumors that she not only used opium, but also injected herself with other drugs. I also heard that it was a painkiller for her traumatic injuries. And then there's the statement from her younger sister who said that she only injected herself with morphine. Unquote. Kawashima's restaurant career ended when she was nearly murdered by anti-Japanese resistance forces. I think the story was something like was something like they burst in and threw a grenade or like started shooting, but she was hospitalized over it and the restaurant ended up closing for non-payment of rent as a result. The newspapers erroneously reported her death, so she got the unique opportunity to read her own obituary. She said, In my case, the newspapers and magazines attempted to size up the worth of my life and printed the obituaries even before my coffin had been readied. They called me strange, flashy, romantic, adventurous, and always after the bazaar. So Yoshiko managed to attract another man, and this one was extremely notable. She fell in love with Ryoichi Sasakawa, the first love of her life, the world's richest fascist. The man who would eventually be arrested as a Class A work criminal, and then released in the famous Christmas Amnesty, along with Yoshio Kodama, as well as Nobusuke Kishi. Sasakawa would go on to do many, many things, including funding the World Anti-Communist League, he would later become a very famous philanthropist. Now, from what we can tell, Sasakawa became involved with Yoshiko through General Hayao Dada. Dada, of course, was fed up with her and started to plot her assassination. Sasakawa was asked to intervene and deal with her instead. A little spoiler for everyone. I have a really good episode on Sasakawa coming up. But let's just say Sasakawa was like, the rich man who loved to solve problems. So he was asked and offered to intervene and deal with Kawashima instead. 
we have the account of Sasakawa being asked to deal with her. It was June 1940 when the army's Major General Yuri, an old friend, broached the topic with Sasakawa in a Beijing hotel. He said, I have something that I must ask you. And what might that be, said Sasakawa. Sasakawa-san, do you know Kawashima Yoshiko? I've heard talk about her, but I've never met her in person. Has anything happened to Yoshiko? Yes, there's been some trouble with her. It's giving me a headache. Yuri lowered his voice. She's under house arrest now, but the military brass has ordered me to dispose of her. Sasakawa shouted, What's all this about? Didn't she work with the military during the Manchuria and Shanghai incidents? Yes, that's true. She worked for Major Tanaka Ryukichi, Ryukichi in Shanghai and accomplished a lot when she was a member of the Information Division of the Special Service Agency. But recently she's become a bit more than the military can handle. You mean she's become a nuisance, said Sasakawa. Yes, that's right. These are His Excellency's orders, referring to Tata. When I think about it, I feel sorry for her. The military exploited her as long as she was useful, and now that she's done something slightly bad, they want to be rid of her. It's immoral. I can't bring myself to kill her. Now, supposedly, Sasakawa felt that Tada should not have ordered her to be murdered, so Sasakawa visited her at her home in Beijing, where she was being watched by Japanese military police. Yoshiko complained to Sasakawa, saying, These days no one comes to see me because they're afraid of Papa. Papa, in this case, referring to General Tada. Yoshiko said, Sensei, you have a look at them, pointing at the military policemen. I'm being treated like a criminal. This is all at Papa's orders. Sensei, they say I've done bad things, but isn't it Papa who's the betrayer? He makes use of me, showing me no mercy, and then tells me that he can't stand the sight of me and throws me out like some old rag. Those guys, they wouldn't hesitate to kill their own parents and brothers just to protect themselves. You take Tada or Tanaka, they were both after my body, but they're just worthless. You call them generals, they're nothing but two-bit generals, a bunch of ungrateful thugs." Unquote. Now I'm telling you, Sasagawa, for all of his many faults, he really seemed to love to solve problems and to spend money doing it. So he temporarily resettled Yoshiko at Naniwa Kawashima's home at Dalian, which I'm sure both of them loved. Then he brought her to his home at Fukuoka, and he watched after her for a time and paid for her many expenses. One of Sasakawa's biographers described one of the rumors about Kawashima at this time, saying she would use her troops she'd use her troops to inform on people to the military police who would arrest merchants and rich people. Next, she would go to the prisoners' families and tell them about how she was well acquainted with the higher ups in the military police. She told the families that she would negotiate and so raked up a load of money and property. Unquote. That quote is not very clear, but she's, but they're describing her doing shakedowns and extortion, right? At this period of time, Yoshiko began to turn on Manchukuo, saying publicly, the Kwantung army is the real emperor. Then, and I don't know if I made this clear, but Sasakawa and Kawashima were sleeping together. There's a scene of her refusing to leave his bed and saying, hold me. I want to be held by a real Japanese, which is just so bleak and dark, right? Now, 
maybe it's a cruel joke. Maybe I'm being cruel, but, but one of the reasons why I keep calling each of these men the first love of her life is because she claimed that herself in her own, like, memoirs, right? Which brings us to the last first love of her life, Toru Yamaga, the same Yamaga that she had dated many years prior. He was a very interesting guy. He was a specialist in Chinese art, which in this time and place meant that he was also an expert in stealing art from China. He was also involved in espionage for multiple groups, and when he cheated on Yoshiko, she reported him as a double agent to the Kempeitai. Which, by the way, I, like actually appears to be true. The only issue is that she was blowing up his spot, not that it was false, right? So he was actually arrested and sentenced to 10 years in a military prison over this, which sort of shows the volatility of the woman who two other lovers literally planned to kill, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not saying they were justified, but she would fuck your life up. <laughs> Instead of serving those 10 years, Yamaga committed suicide in the countryside, and his corpse had been mutilated by dogs after it was finally found. It's such a poetic, nigh-biblical end to some of these people, I swear. While living in Fukuoka, Yoshiko continued to criticize Japan's policies. To make an understatement, it was extremely unpopular for her to be doing that in Fukuoka, of all places. Her home in China was also vandalized by a would-be Chinese hit squad. They called her a running dog of the Japanese. And in case you're wondering, these are Chinese nationalists, not the communists. Not that it, you know, really matters in this case, but... So in these deranged times of late, late-stage World War II, Yoshiko became almost delusional. At the very, very end of the war, she repeatedly phoned the home of Hideki Tojo to offer her services. She said, I would like to serve as the bridge of peace between China and Japan. That's what she told Tojo's wife. She said, if they will escort me to Japan's front line, I can help. I know a lot of Chiang Kai-shek's generals. Tojo, of course, refused to talk to her, saying, Japan is not so far gone that we need to, that we need to depend on help from a feeble woman like that. Though, in a way, Japan actually was that far gone. Not to say that she would have actually helped, but... Then, interestingly, Kawashima chose to go back to China. She couldn't have been entirely delusional ab about what that meant. Like, she knew that she was a famous collaborator with the Japanese. It's hard to read this as anything but a fatalistic move, which isn't to say that she was resigned to die. When she was inevitably arrested and put on trial, her judge even asked her, why did you even come back to China? And she told him the truth. She said, I came back because one of my pet monkeys had diarrhea. That's right, dear listeners, I have neglected to talk about Yoshiko's pet monkeys. She had pet monkeys, especially towards the end of her life. In her boredom, after she lost the restaurant especially, she got four pet monkeys, Fukuchan, Monchan, Deko, and Chibi. They lived with her at the Sano Hotel, which was one of the few western-style hotels in Tokyo at the time. A true sociopath, she said, I don't want to die with humans, but I'll be happy if I die with monkeys. Monkeys are honest. Dogs, too. 
I think that by the time she was arrested, she only had one pet monkey, however. Now, I've been thinking for some time. She said, I came back because one of my monkeys had diarrhea. I'm stuck thinking about it. Don't ask me what it means. I don't know why that would necessitate returning to China, and I cannot figure it out. I've actually wasted quite a bit of time thinking about this. Like, is it related to the type of food that China has? Sound off in the comments, because I legitimately don't know about monkey care enough to figure this out. After Japan was defeated in, in China, China was simmering. They were ready to get back to their ongoing civil war between the nationalists and the communists. And of course, all sides had something to prove, right? The Japanese settlers in Manchukuo were attempting to flee. The Soviets were advancing in Manchukuo. And Puyi was arrested by Soviet forces. He was eventually handed over to the Chinese in 1959. When the Soviets captured the royals, they put them on a horse-drawn cart with a large white flag labeled the traitorous imperial family from the false nation of Manchukuo. No one ever said the Soviets didn't have the right position on, on monarchy, right? Not long after this, Yoshiko Kawashima was arrested by the Chinese nationalists in 1945. Now, for the pet-minded among you, I can hear you asking, Jimmy, Jimmy, but what happened to her pet monkey? Don't worry. An Associated Press reporter put in some valuable shoe leather reporting during this trial, tracking down Yoshiko's pet monkey, and wrote, After she was arrested, the monkey's new owner said, No one wanted to take care of him, so he was sent to my place. He is now living in a passageway in my house and eats steamed buns and rice with some vegetables every day. He is very well behaved and helps me look after my house and catch lice. He enjoys smoking, and sometimes he goes off for a while to meditate. Unquote. Justice for Chibi. Peace at last. <laughs> and it underscores how journalists have just the greatest track record of writing the most important facts about Yoshiko Kawashima, right? She was put on trial, and like everything else in her life, it was a full PR campaign. Only this time, it was the nationalist Chinese regime trying to look like the strong defenders of China against Imperial Japan. And by the way, this was absolutely a show trial. If you only ever apply that term to communist trials, why, that's a pretty big oversight. And of course, show trial as a term only means <laughs> that <laughs> there was a show on, right? It doesn't mean necessarily that the trial was unfair. And I don't think Yoshiko got an unfair trial, though she certainly would disagree. Yoshiko Kawashima was charged with being a traitor, which was a capital crime under the Nationalist Chinese Law Code. It applied to Chinese citizens aiding the enemy. Her defense was that she was a Japanese citizen because she was adopted by Naniwa Kawashima as a child. Now, if that were true, then she probably would have gotten off from at least the death sentence. Which, you remember that I said she was never listed in the Kawashima family register, right? This suddenly became a grave oversight. Through the last days of her life, she fixated on the possibility of proving her Japanese citizenship, thereby saving her life. 
She wrote endless letters to Naniwa hinting or implying that, that he should falsify the family registry records. Naniwa did not falsify the records, but he did lie in a letter to the courts saying that her record was lost in the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. Remember, we talked about that earthquake in prior episodes, mainly in the context of anti-red and anti-Korean pogroms and state-sponsored murders instigated by the earthquakes. Also, supposedly, Nisho Inoue predicted the earthquake. Questionable, right? Now, Naniwa was almost certainly lying, because earthquakes usually don't destroy just a single record with the rest of the family's history preserved. Naniwa's letter also accidentally proved Yoshiko's age was in fact older than she said, which both undermined her testimony and made the case worse. Yoshiko wrote back to Naniwa asking him to clarify his statements. She said, You've made a mistake in your letter. Please think this over again. At the time of the Manchurian incident, I was just 16 years old. This year, I am 33 without a doubt. You've got it wrong. I think if you make a mistake in the year, it causes me all sorts of problems. They'll say I am telling lies to suit my own purposes. Unquote. The court ultimately decided that while she probably did not have Japanese citizenship, it was ultimately meaningless because she had been born with Chinese citizenship anyway, so the charges of treason were still applicable. The prosecution gave the following argument. The accused is a descendant of the Qing dynasty of the Qing imperial family and has devoted herself to the restoration of the Qing dynasty. She has been brainwashed into supporting Japanese militarism since her youth. She is good at horseback riding, shooting, swimming, running, skating, dancing, driving cars, and piloting airplanes. Though over 30 years old, she is not married. In short, she has all the qualities required for espionage work. Unquote. The prosecution also used the novel, The Beauty of Men's Clothing, as evidence in order to convict her. Them doing this was controversial, but if you've listened to my Novels as Spycraft episodes, you would I'm sure you would understand that I have complicated feelings about that. Yoshiko, on her part, claimed to love China, and that her actions were only in service of her country. She also tried to play dumb. She insisted on using a translator and pretended that her Chinese was worse than it actually was. She said, I couldn't understand what was happening in China, I couldn't speak Chinese very well, I didn't have a clue about the names of important people in China nor about Chinese culture. How could I possibly do intelligence work? One of the prosecutors complained about her, saying, You don't give us serious answers. All you talk about are your monkeys feigning ignorance. Which, I mean, if I had a monkey, I would probably talk about it nonstop, too. To say that Yoshiko Kawashima had a weird manner during this trial would be an understatement. The prosecution could frequently trick her into boasting about her exploits and bragging about activities that the Chinese clearly did not find amusing. Some of the stories she told at the trial were probably false based on the documented evidence of her being elsewhere at certain times, but, you know, nonetheless. Apart from trying to prove adoptive Japanese citizenship, Yoshiko also denied everything and argued that this was all a big misunderstanding. She said, 
My father is of Chinese blood. If China had been defeated, I would have also become a slave in a conquered nation. Why in hell would I help the Japanese defeat the Chinese? I seek only peace in the world. Not only my adoptive father, but also the father of the nation, Sun Yat-sen, emphasized this. How can anyone call me a traitor because of this? If I ever worked as a spy, then tell me, what was my number? Did anyone actually see me doing anything? Unquote. Which sounds pretty cool, but there were like dozens and dozens and dozens of witnesses testifying to her doing things, right? In a letter, Yoshiko wrote, They'll probably execute me. The court ruling says that I am a big spy, that I tried to use the Japanese to bring the Qing dynasty to power. They say I sold China to the enemy. They'll execute me since this is what they have in their heads. I feel like thanking them. Was I really such an important person? Excuse me, I ask them. Please show me some proof. That's when the monkey show really gets going. Unquote. It is certainly true that the decision to prosecute and execute her was political, but she was incredibly guilty, right? Yoshiko Kawashima was sentenced to death on October 22, 1947. She was found guilty of aiding the enemy and betraying China. The conviction specifically called out becoming a dancer in Shanghai in order to spy for the Japanese, specifically called out bringing the Empress to Manchukuo, serving as advisor to Hayao Tada in Manchukuo, and her role in the military plots in leading bandit troops to establish a puppet regime in Rei with Puyi as head, plotting to bring Puyi to Beijing in order to revive the Qing dynasty and overthrow the nationalist government, and many, many other crimes. We have the words of another Associated Press reporter who did Yoshiko's last interview. <laughs> the AP reporters yet again hitting it out of the park doing a fabulous job by focusing on how busted she looked. They said, the Matahari, again, transatlantic accent, the Matahari of Asia is awaiting with resignation her imminent execution. She no longer looks the part of the oriental siren who used her charms to help Japan in the war. At the age of 33, her upper teeth are gone, her hair is cut in a mannish bob, and she wears a padded gray jacket and slacks that make her small figure look bigger than it is. Some clues to vanished beauty remain in her fair skin, large dark eyes, and small, delicate hands. Yoshiko told this reporter, I don't like men. They only make trouble for women. In March 1948, Yoshiko Kawashima was taken to the Hebei model prison courtyard, made to kneel, and shot in the back of the head. There are rumors that she actually survived, not the gunshot, I mean, like that she wasn't executed and was allowed to live in Chengchun, much like how there are rumors about Joan of Arc doing that, but nobody knows for sure. One argument in favor of that theory is that only Western reporters were allowed to witness the execution, and we know how solid their reporting is. I'm agnostic on the question, mainly because I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that the majority of the evidence suggests that she was, in fact, executed. Also, I kind of doubt it because there are interviews with her family decades later, and there is no indication that they think or knew that she was still alive. Now, what are we to make of Yoshiko Kawashima? For one thing, when I read up on her, 
I thought there would be a whole lot more of the gender-bending stuff. It actually doesn't come up that often in her life. Outside of the salacious reporting by journalists. The same journalists who made very interesting journalistic choices. I am not denying that she was gender non-conforming. She definitely cross-dressed. But it was not really, a, it didn't seem to be as central as initially marketed, right, in her, like, myth. What's interesting about Yoshiko Kawashima is that half of her image and mythos was fictional. We can almost chart out the intentional creation of the myth. Yoshiko spied and schemed against China for Japan, yes. But what's interesting is that half of her exploits didn't even seem to happen which certainly raises some interesting questions about her guilt. Also, I will say that, in fairness, there is nothing that society, all societies, not just Chinese, there's nothing that society loves more than flagellating and or killing a woman for betraying her country. And there's undeniably a degree of misogyny in holding them more accountable than the men guilty of the same things. The Chinese nationalists were extremely in bed with all kinds of collaborators with the Japanese. In many ways, the Chinese Republic itself was a collaborationist government. That is such a complicated statement, and I am not getting into it right now. But the point is that they were guilty of many of the things they were blaming Yoshiko for. But she, of course, was from their political rivals. They, of course, were of the Chinese Republic. She was from the Qing Dynasty. So they were fine hanging her out to dry, making her a scapegoat, etc., etc. Now, Yoshiko Kawashima was a lot like Matahari in that she was kind of a scapegoat, but also guilty, but also made a public example of, also kind of like Joan of Arc, if you think about it. In Yoshiko Kawashima's autobiography, in the shadow of chaos, which she wrote when she was running her restaurant, so like that period of her life. In her autobiography, she argued that her father did not cooperate with the Japanese willingly, and that he mainly wanted to bring about the Qing restoration. The second half of that statement, 100% true. The first half is provably demonstrably false. I also left out of my retelling of her life many, many many documented times when she was shown to lie about different events. Many years later, Yoshiko Kawashima's grandniece, Shoko Kawashima, was interviewed and asked about all of this. She said, I never met Yoshiko, but my mother used to say that while she may have worked with the Japanese military, there's no proof she was a traitor to China. There's no proof about any of those charges made against Yoshiko. My mother always wanted to tell this to the world." Unquote. Again, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence, <laughs> right? But interestingly, Shoko Kawashima's family was in China. They left China for Japan because they were experiencing problems during the cultural, during the cultural revolution. I'm sure there's a long and nuanced story to that, but the Phyllis Birnbaum book calls out the fact that they were not allowed to join the Red Guards because they were Qing Dynasty nobility. Shoko Kawashima maintained that her grand-aunt was innocent, saying, 
history is based on facts. They called Yoshiko a prostitute. They called her Madahari, but there are no facts to back up these accusations. I worry about how history will judge her. I hope that during my lifetime, Yoshiko will be cleared of charges that she betrayed China. Unquote. To me, it just sounds like the Red Guards were right. <laughs> the Red Guards stay winning. <laughs> Not letting the Kawashima Qing Dynasty family in to their organization, right? Now, I've probably said this before, but I don't really like the blank of blank comparison like, say, the Matahari of Asia or the Lawrence of Manchuria, you know, things like that. But in this case, I'm allowing it because so many people made this comparison. Joan of Arc of Manchuria, Matahari of, Ma of Asia, so many people said it, including herself and her family. Now, Shoko Kawashima said, I hope that during my lifetime, Yoshiko will be cleared of charges that she betrayed China. Not if I have anything to say about it. By virtually any metric or position you could possibly take, except maybe an outright Qing Dynasty irredentist position, Yoshiko Kawashima was absolutely a traitor to her people, to China, she was absolutely a criminal. All history is family history. All the more so with actual nobility, right? And at the end of the day, Yoshiko Kawashima wasn't a monster just because she had some weird character flaws or she was born that way or the abuses that she endured. It was because of her family and her class position. She was fighting to turn the clock back to basically re-enslave China, because her family had enslaved China once before. Yoshiko wanted to be the Manchukuo Joan of Arc, but she ended up the Matahari of Asia. Yoshiko Kawashima fought to recover what her family had lost, which was a China enslaved. And in the end, she got what she deserved. Four sources today I used Manchu Princess Japanese Spy, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army by Phyllis Birnbaum. I do not necessarily recommend this book. Um, it's poorly written, kind of a mess, overly sympathetic to her. It's a mess. I would have used a different book if I had a different book. To a lesser extent, I used the excellent book Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, the book Confessions of a Yakuza by Junichi Saga, and several other books, I'm sure. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon. It's $5 a month if you want to support the main show and get some additional content. Now I need to be on my way to Kyoto. See you next week, and God bless. Godless spy must buy and cover all of your secrets. I want them. There's no stopping me now. I'm a liar, playing the game of desire, and gonna leave no survivors. Would you fall for me now? She's like Cleopatra, the army of lovers.
undercover. I am a dangerous lover. Drinking my poisonous water. And you're under my spell. Mesmerizing. Moving my hips, you are trying. You can resist right if I Got a story to tell. Just like Cleopatra. The army of lovers. Let's go.